And now we're going to move to the round table. And I think we're going to have the questions up on, um, yeah, there we go. So I'm going to read them for you and um, they're going to stay up there so that you can keep considering it. And we're going to open up the mics in a few minutes. Think about a time in your life where you were an us or a them, an insider or an outsider, where you belonged or didn't, and where you felt safe or unsafe. How did it feel being an us compared to a them? If you were an insider, who in your context were the outsiders? What secrets did you have to keep to be in your grouping? And where would you say you are now compared to back then? So I'm gonna give you uh, a few minutes to ruminate on those. Uh, you don't have to answer them all. If one of them kind of is highlight, highlighted to you, uh, to you, then just consider how you might like to um, share with us about that particular one, but you certainly don't have to go through them all. Um, so I, I think I'm just, I need to come clean this morning and use um, these few minutes as a confessional because these questions have been haunting me for the last couple of days. Thank you, Casey. Um, but I, I don't wanna confess with some, <laughs> pardon the pun, uh, like some screen between us, um, like as if we were you know, in a confessional booth, but I want to share in a way that makes it that intimate. So my name is Eden Jersak, and I've been pastoring here at The Bridge for the last year. I am 58 years old, and in my time, I have been both in the us camp and in the them camp. When I was in grade six, there was a new girl in my school, and I knew as a good Christian girl, I was meant to be nice and befriend her um, so that she would have a friend. And so I did. But there was a hitch in my endeavor to be good. Uh, my friends didn't like her. So I found myself having to defend her repeatedly to my friends, begging that she might join us and feeling the sting of shame when they weren't kind. But at some point, I just lost the desire to continue this struggle, and I too became unkind, and likely made her days at school unbearable. I was called up on my behavior by my mom, but not before that friendship was over. And as I consider these questions, this 40-year-old 40 memory came to mind. And I realized a couple of things. The us and them spectrum is not linear. It's fickle. And it has a tail on it that really stings. I went from the good girl camp to a bully in a matter of days. We use us, them language to try to distance ourselves from what we don't want to be. But in the end, we can be exactly that in a moment. 
belonging is a really deep need. We all have um, a need to belong. But my, belonging is a deep need we all have, but belonging doesn't have to be at the expense of someone else belonging. My belonging cost me my integrity, my 10 year old integrity and my acting out in unkindness cost me a shame that has lasted almost five decades. So there you have it. And I'm thinking that maybe this story from my 10 year old self has something to do with me wanting to make space for everyone to belong. But it's also a tale of caution that is a fresh lesson for me today. So we'll open up the mics. You do have to unmute yourself if you would like to share, uh, but we are going to switch over to Mark and Leah for our communion now. Okay, so if you've uh, gathered your elements about you, I'll just begin to read. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. All who come to me shall not hunger, and all who believe in me shall not thirst. We gather around these symbols of bread and wine, elements of both nourishment and transformation. Let us pray. Loving God, you are as close to us as our breath. Your love is constant and unfailing. Thank you. We remember on the night when Jesus and the disciples had their last meal. Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat it, and remember me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to the disciples, saying, Drink this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant poured out for you and for many. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In the symbol of the cup, we participate in the new life that Christ brings. Let us pray. We give thanks, loving God, that you have refreshed us at your table. You strengthen our faith. Increase our love for one another. May we go out into the world to plant seeds of transformation and hope. Amen. So we want to pray for Casey. Father God, we just thank you for blessing Casey's words, his calm today and his inspiration, Lord, and we ask you to bless our ears and our minds so that we can hear the message from you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Eden, thanks for sharing that confession. Um, I admit that um, it brought up some, some memories that I have myself of, of things that were similar to that, where 
you know, I'd been, I'd been treated poorly as a kid. And as such, in order to be involved, I, and included, I took on a little bit of that myself. And it wasn't, it was never for a prolonged period of time, but yeah, anyways, I, I felt that and, and I felt um, the burden that it, that it carries for you. So when Eden asked me to share, um, she sent me all the lectionary passages. And uh, I'll admit that as I first read them, um, I thought that perhaps she had made an error with what she sent me. Um, I, didn't, I didn't immediately see how, how these things would go together, especially the gospel passage, um, because it included not the whole thing, but it included half of one of the genealogies um, right after Jesus got baptized. So, so I, I emailed her back at first and <clears throat> asked her if she had made a mistake, um, which she assured me that she hadn't. She said, just read them again. Um, I think there's something that you're going to find in there. Um, you don't have to, you don't have to speak on all of them. Um, but, but see if, see if something works together. And, and of course, in Eden's way, she, um, she assured me that, you know, we can talk about it more. Uh, we can discuss it. Um, so that being said, uh, I'm using three out of the four lectionary passages and I'm going to try to, to find a connecting piece within them. Um, hopefully it doesn't come across too disjointed. Um, and I'll, I'll let you let me know at the end if, if, uh, if it worked or not. Um, I also wanted to, to give a disclaimer that some of the things I'm talking about this morning, I am in no way an expert. Uh, I don't work professionally in this field. Um, but I still wanted to share a little bit of my perspective. So first, I wanted to start by telling some of my story. Um, I grew up in a small, about the, about the size of the bridge, maybe a little bit smaller, conservative, charismatic, word of faith church. We did a lot together. We met several times a week. Along with that conservatism, my parents and most people around me that I knew didn't drink at all didn't smoke, didn't do drugs, didn't, didn't really watch dirty movies, um, PG kind of thing. Never swore, except for all those Christianese kind of, kind of swears that, that Christian kids end up taking on. Uh, and, and except for, you know, we, we tried some words on and then got disciplined. Uh, we listened only to Christian music, all the things. Um, for most of my early childhood, I wasn't living in a, in a complete bubble. I went to public school until, until grade 10. So around the age of 15. Um, so I had, I had non-Christian friends, everything like that. Um, but at around age 15, grade 10, a bunch of families from our church actually pulled all their kids out of the schools they were in. And we did sort of a group homeschool. We called it a Christian private school, but really we weren't looking for more people to add to this group. Um, and the idea was that we were all going to sort of take our beliefs more seriously, take our faith more seriously. That idea of, you know, leaving yourself unstained from, from the influence of the world. So I did at that point develop a personal relationship with Jesus and, and it did grow and it has been developing through these years. 
Um, but living in this bubble also brought about a fairly, fairly dualistic way of thinking. We were very sure on the things that we, we believed were wrong. Uh, so we had strong beliefs against swearing, drinking, smoking, doing any sort of drugs, um, partying, um, living with someone before you were married, being in a relationship without the intent of being of, of it leading towards marriage, all the things that, that I just ended up not doing because I wasn't allowed to. So I also believed in those days that your conversion experience had to look a very specific certain way. You had to make sure that you said sorry to God for all your sins every time that you sinned to ensure that you would go to heaven. That a Christian should really only have close friendships with other Christians. Uh, and anyone that's not a Christian, it's, it's more of a, you're more there to be, to be an example to them. But you really can't have that kind of close kinship with them. And, and as I said before, you really shouldn't date until you're ready for marriage, all those things. Furthermore, I believed on some level that true Christians had both an immersion baptism experience and a Holy Spirit baptism experience with the evidence of speaking in other tongues uh, or other languages. Christians were supposed to be doing all the things that we saw happening in, in the New Testament. They were supposed to be performing miracles, speaking prophecy, raising the dead, all those things that, that we read about that, that Jesus and the apostles did. And of course, we were supposed to uh, pray and, and usher revival into our city. So there were lots of ways to measure whether you were truly in or not. Now, of course, I'll confess right now, I wasn't regularly or at all performing miracles, but I believe the right things. And that also counted for something in this community. And we were, we were sort of on a journey together and we thought if we could just make our faith strong enough, then we can be that super Christian as well. So all this to say, when I was younger, I think I had a pretty clear idea of us and them, even though as some others said, that line wasn't always so clear. If you left your church, if you left that small bubble, you were probably more of a them. But within that, within that fortress, it was definitely, I was definitely an us. So I graduated high school from that, from that same group of, of four or five families that had got together and did this, did this like ultra private Christian school and, uh, and went to a, a Bible college that was in a similar type of church. So it was, it was in a larger, uh, larger church, but had a lot of the same really conservative ideas about what we shouldn't be doing in order to remain holy, in order to remain pure. I come back after two years. As a young adult, I start getting closer with some friends that I had known as a teenager. I hadn't been really, really close with some of them, but I'd known them. Krisha was included in this group, um, who I'd known a little bit as a teenager, um, but was starting to, to get closer with as, as a young adult. So they were all church-raised kids, but from different denominations from each other. There was, there was some Mennonites in there. Uh, there, was, there was a few of them that were Baptist. And then there was me, this non-denominational, charismatic, uh, conservative kid. Adult, I guess. So it, it became a really tight group that hung out a lot. Fairly quickly, I learned that, that many of them didn't have the same hangups that I did. They, 
most of them socially drank alcohol. They, you know, they occasionally would smoke a cigar, all the things that, that these young Christian kids do to kind of think they're edgy and edgy and cool. But it was obvious, like I said, that they didn't have many of the hangups that I'd known in my fairly small church circle growing up. And, and just to kind of highlight one, I wanted to talk about sort of one that, that I started deconstructing and reconstructing even in my early 20s. I didn't go through this, the bigger journey of, of reimagining some of my faith until I was uh, well into my 30s. But, um, but this one, um, the alcohol bit. So as I said, I, I grew up thinking that any consumption of alcohol was, was absolutely sinful, that you couldn't be both a Christian, really, and, and drink alcohol, not if you were taking it seriously. But after I started becoming friends with this group, and, and it was real friendships, I had, to, I had to grapple with some of those things. I had to realize that, no, these are people that really, they do really love God and they don't have this hang up. Um, So over the course of maybe five to seven years, I went from believing all alcohol, whatever kind it is, is sinful or evil to realizing that, that maybe that wasn't so. Um, But, but I still kind of held to that idea that, oh, but drunkenness, absolutely still sinful to perhaps then I moved to perhaps the line between the two isn't quite so clear cut as many of us get to with many of our beliefs. It's not so simple. And, and then some, I'm somewhere beyond that now. Um, It would be a longer conversation. The point being is that sometimes as in my case, I didn't know the depth of, of my prejudice and change in mindset doesn't always happen quickly. So to end the story, I grew up like many who grew up in the church with very clear lines of good and bad in and out, what it means to be a Christian versus a non-Christian, whether you were in the family or out of the family of God. And to kind of highlight something that I read as I was preparing, I read an article in, in the guardian online by a man named John A. Powell. He's the director of the Haas Institute for to a fair and inclusive society, which is a part of, Um, the University of California in Berkeley. And he talks about othering this way. So he says, othering is not about liking or disliking someone, but it's based on a conscious or unconscious assumption that a certain identified group poses a threat to a favored group. When I read that, I thought, I think that's what a lot of us smaller churches and bigger churches, I think that's what a lot of us felt is that these groups that were outside of the church, they felt they were a threat to us. And so we couldn't let too much of that in. We couldn't let too much of the world in. So I don't know if it sounds familiar to any of you listening, um, but it definitely sounded familiar to me. I, I can hear that phrase going off in my head that I was taught from a young age, uh, that bad company corrupts good morals. It was something I was taught from a very young age. Now that I've been, gr- now that I'm, grown up or that I'm growing up, I've been shocked by some of the othering language that, that you hear that kids can have, whether they're, whether they're Christian kids, whether they're non-Christian kids, whether they're, they're religious, whether they come from, from actually, to be honest, I, I hear 
potentially less of it from from kids that that aren't religious, uh, to be honest. But you hear it nonetheless. And according to again that article, John talks about this as being largely influenced by by politicians and media, and less on personal contact. Personally, I think much of it probably originates there and then is reinforced in smaller groups like churches, like clubs, like groups of friends, the people that you are with day to day. And again, this really resonates with me and my story. Um, so another example I have is I don't, and again, I, I, I don't fully know the source and, and I'm not intending to, um, to blame anyone for, for the beliefs that I held. But for many years, I made the assumption that most homeless people uh, were dangerous, that their problems were actually quite simple, and they just needed to get jobs. But I was unconscious of this partially because that's the way everyone around me spoke when I was growing up. No one else was saying anything different. They all were saying the same thing. Or at least that's all I was hearing. So a story like this actually recently made the front page of the Thursday paper here in Abbotsford. I didn't even know that we had a, in Abbotsford. I didn't even know that we had a Thursday paper um, because like many, I do everything online, but, but Eden pointed, pointed it out to me. Uh, and so I grabbed one from, from the lobby of our apartment building and there was on the, right on the front page of the Thursday paper, there was, there was a title that honestly, it grabbed me right away, but honestly, it was enough. The title enough was enough to make me cringe. And the title of this article in big, bold print was Project Brings Homelessness to Doorstep. And it was referring to that warming center set up in the old Abbotsford Visitor Info Center, that blue building, and it's being called The Cabin. The article talks about how family has been negatively affected and how their landscaping has been damaged in their $2.6 million home that's on the market. The person mentioned in the article is quoted as saying that, as I'm sure you know, this is mental illness we're dealing with, and our city should really step it up. And she, she's also, this person's also cited as, I don't know if she was a she, this person was also cited as saying, or quoted as saying that, she, that they want to be a part of this solution. Um, so I don't know if she was, actually, I think it was a she. So I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> this person, I don't know if they were misquoted. And even though I don't know everything, I feel like I could rant about this for a little bit. But I feel like both the writer of the article and potentially the person quoted, if they were taken in context, have some assumptions that they've built. And I didn't really know what to do with it. So with that, let's move on to scripture. And I have, again, I said I have three separate texts that I'm going to try to do my best to bring together. Maybe this will be a failed experiment. And if I ever get asked to do this again, maybe I'll just stick with one scripture. We shall see. So the first one is in Isaiah chapter 16. And I'm going to read all five verses as they were. And, and then I'm going to talk about it a little bit. 
So it says, send lambs as a tribute to the ruler of the land from Selah across the desert to the Mount of Daughter Zion. Like fluttering bird pushed from the nest, so are the women of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Make up your mind, Moab says, render a decision. Make your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the fugitives. Do not betray the refugees. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with you. Be their shelter from the destroyer. The oppressor will come to an end and destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. That sounds great. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it. One from the house of David. One who in judging seeks justice. And speeds the cause of righteousness. So I did a little bit of looking into this about, because I'd, I'd a little bit forgotten actually, who are these Moabites? and of course, with everything that you look online and do a little bit of research, you can find so much. I'm going to sum it up by saying the Moabites and Israelites were not really friends. They didn't really like each other very much. Uh, they worshipped perhaps different gods. Maybe they, were, maybe they were the same god, but just a different name. It's hard to know. They, they had come from similar roots. So there was Abraham, the father of, the, the father of Israel. And there was Lot, who is seen as the father of Moab. And there was just some stuff going on. You can, you can look into it if you want. Um, you know, there are stories of, of incest between Lot and his daughters. And, and I think that had something to do with it. Um, Moab was potentially less of a patriarchal culture. Uh, I also read that, um, you know, they, they just had some, they just had some stuff. Let's just leave it at that. They just had some stuff and they ended up not really, not really getting on with one another. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, you know, those families that, that they're related, but they just, they can't get along. And it's like, they just don't know why. But this is on a much larger scale, of course. This is this is nations. Um, but I thought about just those two families that um, that just no matter what they do, like they don't even know where it comes from. At least the kids don't. But we don't talk to this to these people in the family. But now the Moabites are humbled and they're they're asking for refuge, protection from the common enemy to all Babylon. And and I don't know about you, but this is something that when I think about the world we live in now, I still think about that. I see in the chat from Morgan, we don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> That's funny, Morgan, because I just watched that last night. Um, when I read about this and, and other stories that are similar, it totally feels like a relevant topic to today. That thought of, will you take in the one that needs help? Will you, or do you have too much prejudice against them? I think about nations. While I'm grateful to live in a country that welcomes refugees, I also know that many people in my own country are in fact not welcome or open to, to refugees and to immigrants because they're people that, that are not like them, or at least that's what, they, that's what they assume. COVID is another one that's caused plenty of us versus them. Um, I don't know about you. I Personally, I, I did choose to get double vaccinated. Um, but it's really easy to jump on the side of, of thinking that everyone that didn't make that choice, everyone that potentially is against the vaccine, that they're all 
uninformed. They haven't done the correct research. It's really easy to get on the rhetoric that that even our government is is putting forth. In municipalities, there can be complex issues like I, like the article that I talked about that of what to do with homeless populations who are often seen as the city's problem and they're seen as a problem. The amount of t- people who talk about homeless populations with severe judgment, even something like the cabin in Abbotsford where you know it's doing a good thing, but people are more concerned about where it is. They're more concerned that it's right at their doorstep. Within churches, I think about people who have identified different from straight and cisgender, where they've had the problem of not being able to find somewhere else to go and yet desperately wanting to serve the way of Christ. And I'm grateful to be in a church community that endeavors to go on this journey towards making the table a little bit bigger or a lot bigger, to making spaces a little bit or a lot safer, even if that means tackling the big questions and not knowing all the answers. And within myself, there's a need to continually reflect on the people who by word, thought, or deed, I have seen as other or less than. And during this strange time, I admit I've not always thought the best thoughts, again, towards towards certain attitudes, uh, anti-vaccine attitudes, and haven't always realized that there are a variety of people with a variety of opinions and beliefs. And since moving towards an affirming position towards the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community, I find it harder to be patient with those that, that aren't. Sometimes judging them as closed-minded, narrow, or even not smart enough to think through an issue. And I say this about myself because I want to show that I too have hangups that I'm still working through. And as I work through one, we over, I overcorrect oftentimes. So I wanted to to read that Isaiah passage because I think it does a really good job of, of outlining the problem where not everyone in large groups gets along. And I think it was nice that Isaiah, you know, implored the Israelite nation to take these people in. I don't know that they, I I don't know what the story was. I, I tried to look it up. Couldn't really find out whether or not they actually did give them refuge. Uh, it wouldn't have been easy if they did. It would have been really messy, I I assume. And it just makes me think about how, yeah, making making space for others. It's not always easy as as just saying, "Well, we're one, we're we're the same." And that leads me to to the next text, which is Ephesians chapter three, where Paul provides the solution that maybe we've used as too simple of a solution at times in, I know I have at times in my life. So Paul says, I'm just going to pick it up in verse five, Ephesians three, verse five. He says, this was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of in Christ Jesus. As I, as I read that 
the first time I thought, how did we get from there to here? How do we get from the problem that we see over and over and over, both in the Old Testament, we see it in our world. How do we get from, from there to here, where we actually all believe, speak, and act as if we really are all one and we're all sharers together? Is it really as simple as saying it? I know I've been saying it for much of my life, even when I was strongly in a camp that that would have excluded certain people because of the way that they thought. But we said it. We said it often. We said we are one. But when we read some of the other books in the scriptures, when we read about news like we read in the newspaper, yeah, it doesn't appear that it was actually that easy to walk out. It's easy to say, I love everybody. But what are my actions? What are my thoughts? What are my intents? What, what is the fruit of it? Can I help and love someone without actively trying to save or change them into the better version that I think that they need to be? So a good question for me to consider is, and that I considered as after reading is, is how do I get from there or othering to what Paul encourages, which is we are joint heirs. We we are one, which brings me to the passage in Luke. So in Luke chapter three, starting in verse 21, says, now it came to pass when all the people were baptized, that Jesus also having been baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form as a dove upon him. And a voice came out of heaven. Thou art my beloved son. In thee, I'm well pleased. Now, again, it's easy to stop there, but some interesting other bits from the chapter. I just wanted to, I'm not going to read them, but I just wanted to include them. So the genealogy that I was talking about, um, it traces Mary's lineage from David back to Abraham, back to Noah, back to Adam, and then finally to God. I'm sure you could read this in more than one way. Perhaps I'm not smart enough with genealogies, but um, after doing a little bit of looking, the way that I'm reading it is that Jesus is like us from a common lineage. He came to he came to us in human form in the lineage of man. So the lineage that is somehow common to all of mankind, all of humankind. If not literally, then at least metaphorically. Also in this chapter is a description of the crowd that comes before, which includes citizens of the Jordan Valley. Perhaps some of those ones that that Israel didn't like were also being baptized in this water. Perhaps uh, those that came from the Moabite heritage were also being baptized in this water. Tax collectors, soldiers, uh, perhaps Roman soldiers were, were also being baptized in this water. I grew up with this idea that there were sort of these rites of passage that proved whether you were in or whether you were out. Baptism was definitely one of these, as was saying the sinner's prayer. But when I read the baptism story with the other two versions or the other two verses, sorry, in mind, this is where I went. Jesus was baptized along with 
all the other people that came, not separate. It didn't say that after they had all left, he had this private baptism experience. The thing that's interesting to me about that is that he, if he had wanted to, he could have set himself up as a king. He could have set himself up as this great prophet. Yet he was willing to be baptized in the same water as the others, alongside them, not separate. And what I thought of when I thought of that was that Jesus is willing to be in it with us. And we need to be willing, we need to become willing, or we can become willing to be in it with others. We're invited to that. I used to think that baptism was yet another way that I proved that I was different, righteous, more righteous better. Rachel Held Evans says in her book, Searching for Sunday, that ultimately baptism is a naming. When Jesus emerged from the waters of the Jordan River, a voice from heaven declared that this is my son, who I love, with whom I'm well pleased. But Jesus did not begin to be loved at the moment of his baptism, according to Rachel, nor did he cease to be loved when his baptism became a memory. But baptism simply named the reality of his existing and unending belovedness. So I want to go a step further and suggest that that your name as a child of God is realized the moment you were born. Perhaps baptizing is a realizing of that belovedness. We know that othering is a real thing in our world. It's it exists within cities, it exists within countries, it exists within churches and schools. If we're honest, it goes back pretty far, really far. Like many of us, likely many of us have or do participate in it in some way. Paul's talk of we are all one and joint heirs, it's really a simplification. And it sounds like a simple solution, but it's not so simple to act out in our own lives. Perhaps Jesus' baptism was actually meant to unite and not to exclude. Perhaps part of our call as the Great Commission to others is in fact that to show and to to bring about that good news that they are beloved by the divine and they do matter. And that in baptism, in cleansing, it's the same water that's washing all of us. That's the interesting thing about the Jordan River and, and about being baptized in a river is that it's the same it's the same body that might have baptized people upstream, and that same water is flowing and it's it's cleansing more people and and you you'd be pretty hard pressed if you're getting baptized in water like that to really know who else has been baptized in that same water. So before I close, here are some questions that that I've been considering um And I thought maybe we can consider before we take some things to Jesus in prayer. So how have I been othered or or excluded in my own life? And how have I done the same to others? But how am I similar to the one that I've judged? Finally, how can I seek to understand those that have been othered? Some questions that I want to bring into prayer. Or some thoughts that I want to bring into prayer. Jesus, help me to see the the judgments that I've proclaimed. 
And Jesus, help me to be a place of refuge and safety for others. Jesus, help me to to see the water that cleanses as something that can unite, not to divide. Jesus, help me to see that all are beloved children from the moment that they're born. That's it. Hey everybody. So thank you, Casey, for sharing with us again back on Gallery View. <laughs> there we go. Sometimes I wonder if the us and them thing, just when you were talking, I was I was thinking about how us and them is meant to move us out of a binary, but then it can so easily moving out of it can become another one where we're like, okay, well, if there's no us and them, then everything goes and nothing matters. And you know, and then so it's like, well, and then I can't speak up if somebody does something to somebody else. Well, everybody belongs. And, and I can and I think there is a real um, tension that that Jesus is always inviting us into in that place of like, how do we not elevate a belief above somebody's belovedness and yet understand that beliefs have impact and beliefs work themselves out, you know? Yeah. I was going to say this when I was when I, in my talk, but um, I know that there's there's people here in this community that that have studied certain areas much more than I have. Um, so I was one thing that I was interested in, but really didn't have the time or expertise to really look into was sort of the psychology of, of othering. Cause I think there's lots there about like what, what causes it and what it does. Um, anecdotally, I can think of a time in my life when, when certain things, certain behaviors, they made me like sick to my stomach almost thinking about other people doing those things. silence you know what nancy has typed something um that i want to share in the that she said in the in the comments here and it said at the risk of making some of our conservative roots quake i will quote namaste this was the beginning of me seeing all people and losing some of the us them perspective and here's what it says my soul honors your soul i honor the place in you where the entire universe resides. I honor the light, love, truth, beauty, and peace within you because it is also within me. In sharing these things, we are we are united. We are the same. We are one. So anyways, appreciate that. Thank you, first of all, for Casey and for the good word that he shared with us this morning. And thank you for everyone who has gathered here on screen, everybody who is going to listen to the podcast because they didn't gather with us um, this morning. And we just... Um, ask that you would reveal the belonging that is innate in us, that we would all have a fresh baptism of belonging into the cosmic us that we all belong to. And um, that we would learn to recognize that and see that belovedness in every person, even people that we wildly disagree with, that we would rest in belovedness as a starting point. So thank you, God, for this community and for your 
wild and radical love. Amen. <laughs>